0: Um, we are continuing our series on Genesis. If you, have, if you have been with us for the past couple of weeks, you will know we've been going through the book of Genesis. And today, I would like to invite you to turn with me to Genesis 38. So if you have your Bibles, um, bring them out or turn them on and turn them to Genesis 38. Um, if you don't have a Bible, I'm sure the person next to you would be kind enough to let you borrow theirs. If not, we have Bibles in the back also that you could avail of to borrow. So Genesis 38. And before we get this um, ball rolling here, let me just, let's just commit this time to the Lord. Father, the one thing we ask you right now is that you would open up our hearts to your word. And nothing but your word will be preached today. Not my opinions, not my views, but only what your word says. We ask that you would do the work that only you can do, and that is to change our lives, to change our hearts, to make these words the truth in our lives. We humbly ask these things that you would help us. In your name we pray, amen. Um, We have quite a bit of scripture to get through today. It is the whole chapter of Genesis 38. So we're going to do things a little bit different. What we're going to do is we're going to read for a little bit, chat for a little bit, and then we'll just keep on going until we cover the whole chapter. And this message is actually called um, At Our Worst, At Our Worst. Um, A little bit of context. We are going through the book of Genesis. Last week, since we are going through the whole book, can you guess it? We went through Genesis 37. And building up to this, um, we looked at several key figures in the book of Genesis. Um, we started with Abraham, then we moved to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and now we are moving to Joseph. And if you guys have followed us, they're all related. Isaac is the son of Abraham, Jacob is the son of Isaac, and Joseph is the son of Jacob. Um, and so now we are in this story this this part of scripture that goes through the life of joseph and you look at the outline it's actually one of the more um, lengthy portions of this whole book so starting verse one it happened that at that time judah now let me stop there so we're talking about joseph this whole passage of scripture this whole majority of this we're talking about the life of joseph and up to this point there's been two sons in every generation so isaac and ishmael jacob and esau but then when it comes to joseph's generation there are multiple multiple kids and then but this story most of it focuses on the life of joseph then now this this chapter we're going to talk about i'm going to give you a little bit of a like kind of preparation for it it's a very peculiar chapter in, in more ways than one it's placed in a very weird spot because all of a sudden there's this story this narrative that started in genesis 37 that is all about joseph and in the chapter right afterwards, it looks to his brother Judah. Now, what was Judah doing right before this? What was Judah doing in chapter thirty-seven? He was the one who proposed to sell Joseph into slavery. He was conniving, scheming. That's what he was doing up until this point. And then all of a sudden, the author of Genesis shifts the focus to him. It goes, verse one: It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira now let me explain what's happening here this is what happens when people move out of their homes they, they move out of their homes they move out maybe you know here we go to college or wherever it is and we move out and then you find this secular friend Hira was somebody he was a Canaanite and now Judah was making friends with this Canaanite person whom the whom God has commanded his family to continuously avoid avoid making any associations avoid intermarrying with their culture So Judah moved out of the house, come to live in the land of Canaan. And this word here, it says, turned aside, meaning he developed a close relation with this man, with Hira. So it's not just turned aside, like move close by location, but also building a close relation with this person. And we see as we go through this whole chapter that Hira was of no good influence to Judah. And this is something we need to think about in our own lives like when we move out when we engage the world coming from a christian background are we influencing them or are they influencing us are we being carried by their influence or are we influencing them drawing them closer to who jesus is to, to what the gospel is about those with the knowledge of the lord those who have a relationship with him we have to be careful that we do the influencing not being influenced by the world Verse two. There Judas saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. So just clarification, Shua isn't the name of the daughter. That is the name of the daughter's father. The daughter is actually unnamed all throughout the whole book of the Bible. Actually, never names that wife. And what does he do? He took her and went into her. Let me pause there again. Um, you see this word? It says saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite. If you've been following with us for the past couple of weeks you'll realize that the dating standards deteriorates in every single generation. It starts with Isaac. When, Isaac um, when Abraham was looking for a wife for Isaac, he obeyed the Lord, he waited for God's sign, and did all these things in obedience to the Lord, and then Isaac ended up with his wife. One generation later, Jacob, he sees Rachel, saw that she was attractive, went in for... And then you, you know that this whole mess just came out out of that. And now, we see in the life of Judah... What does he do? He sought a daughter and he took her and went into her, took her for his wife. No consulting with his father, no consulting with God, just his own decision based solely on physical appearance. So, in this way, he is kind of like Jacob, where he just saw him and was attracted and went into it, and unlike his grandfather Isaac. Verse 3 and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name ur she conceived again and bore a son and she called his name onan yet again she bore a son and she called his name sheila judah was in kazib when she bore him and judah took a wife for ur his firstborn and her name was tamar we get introduced to the next key figure in this chapter tamar now um, about this time Ur would be around 15 to 16 years old that would be the marrying age during this time and Tamar would not be too far off from that so she is a 15 to 16 year old girl being married to a 15 slash 16 year old boy verse 7 but Ur Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death we need to pause right here Because it's so easy to pass by these things without really thinking about what it means for us. There's a key concept that I want us to understand here when we read things like this. Key concept I want you to understand is that God is holy. We sang about that. We we repeat that word, holy, holy, holy. God is holy. How holy is God? Holy enough to kill sinners. Sinners. we pass around this cliche of a phrase that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And then we read things like this in verse 7. What was the cause? Why did God slay-er? That's the word used here. Put him to death. Killed directly. Why? Because he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. God would never do that. that's not the jesus that's not the god that i believe in. he would never he doesn't hate anyone let me fast forward let's skip this real quick okay romans 9 13 this is the apostle paul quoting the prophet micah he says as it is written jacob i love but esau i hated god is very selective he's always been selective if you look at the past generations that have lived He has selected Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. And now, well, we'll get to that in a little bit. See, here's what we need to understand. When we talk about glorifying God, how is God glorified? The way God is glorified is when he exercises his character, when he displays his character. What does this mean? that he, when he exercises his grace and mercy, but also his holiness and his justice. In both ways, God is glorified. See, the reason a lot of us, the reason why a lot of us take sin so lightly is because we take God's holiness lightly. We sing of it, we, we talk about it, but then we don't see it the way we see it. We go straight to grace, but we need to understand God is holy. If, you're still, if we're still not convinced of this, let's look at verse eight. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now this is, this is their practice during that time. It is called leveret marriage. Now, in leverage marriage, what happens if, is if the firstborn son was married and they die without giving a son, without giving a child to their wife, the brother-in-law's duty is to fulfill that and to provide a child, to make a child with that wife. Why? Back in this culture, the value of women was based solely on their function as a mother. That, that is your value. That is your purpose, to, prov- to produce children, if you were a widow during this time, you would be one of the, if not the most vulnerable group of people. Because in this culture where most of your income comes from, from farming, from livestock, that kind of manual labor, there's just no means for women to make a living. Not like how it is today. So their value is very closely knit to their ability to produce children, to produce heirs for her husband. So you realize this this, um, concept of levered marriage, it is meant to protect them, to protect them from vulnerability. And later on, God confirms this. God confirms this as his will, as he instills this as a law in Deuteronomy 25.5. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife, and performed the duty of a husband's brother to her. God confirms this as law later on. And see, when it says, then Judah said to Onan, go and fulfill your duty, that is a command. It's a command to preserve the family in line, to preserve the birthright of the firstborn, and to protect the vulnerable. What does Onan do? Verse 9, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And again, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Onan's motivations, they were evil. They were selfish. Selfish. See, his motivation for doing this because, you know because there's nothing for me to gain because the firstborn, regardless, he will uh, experience the benefits of the firstborn son, the benefits of the firstborn son. And everyone else, every other child I would have with this woman would be second best. None of the benefits would be left for him. So what, what does he do? He continues to have sexual relations with her without fulfilling his duty. This is a man who is motivated by his own personal gain at the expense of other people. At the expense of his wife, his brother's wife, just uses her. And look what God thinks of this. He says, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. It is a perversion of the purpose of marriage, the divine institution that God placed on us to to preserve. If you look around you, this construct that God has created is being attacked. The construct of marriage. It is not something that man came up with. It is something that God came up with. It is being attacked. It's nothing new. It's happened in the Bible many years ago. Verse 11. After all of these things have happened, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, the third son, my son grows up. For what reason? For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now let me ask you this. Was it Tamar's fault? Was it Tamar's fault that all of Judah's sons have been killed by the Lord? Absolutely not. Each one of his sons were wicked and therefore God killed them. It's interesting to note here that when Judah gave this command to Terah, because we understand when, when women married into, into um, a family, they're like married to that family. There's no going out until they're released by the patriarch, by the father of that family, they are bound to that family. So that's why he says, go and remain a widow. You're not free to marry just anyone, you don't have that freedom. But look at this. I tell you judah had no intention of keeping his promise of giving up sheila when the time was right because honestly it wouldn't take that long tamar again she is 15 to 16 years old sheila could not be that too far behind maybe in a short span of years he would be in that marrying age and judah had no intention of keeping that promise because he feared that if he sent his last son to tamar he would also die because he believed that Tamar was the source of all the tragedy happening in his family, but in reality, it was the evil and wickedness of his own sons. He could not see it. If we look at God's holiness, now we're going to look at man's sin. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So Judah is now a widower. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira, the Adolivite. So him and Hira go up to sheep shearing season and a little bit of context of sheep shearing that season. That's the best description I could give. That's like spring break. That's like Mardi Gras. That's a big party happening. And it's just like a season. This happens during the springtime. It is a season of debauchery, of drunkenness, of orgies. That's what goes on during sheep shearing season. And so this widower goes to spring break slash mardi gras vulnerable and look what happens verse 13 and when tamar was told your father-in-law is going up to timnah to shear his sheep she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to timnah for she saw that sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage Now here's where it gets really, really weird. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Now he realized what kind of a man Judah really is. There's no hesitation. The only thing that would have probably you know, deterred him from doing this. If, was, if he knew he was a daughter-in-law, but because he, she wasn't, he's fine. He's fine with prostitution. He's fine with indulging in prostitution. And again, he's not very unlike his last son. We see here that Judah is a man driven, motivated by personal satisfaction, immediate gratification. That is the type of man that Judah lives by. He lives a life of indulgence. So that's out of the way. This is going to happen. The only thing missing now is a transaction. What's the price? Verse 18. I mean, continuing in verse 16, she said, "What will you give me that you may come into me?" He answered, "I will send you a young goat from the flock." Again, Judah owns livestock. This is his exchange rate. This is his currency. And she said, "If you give me a pledge until you send it, and it stops there." Now. Look at what Tamar is doing. Tamar got smart. She caught on. She knows what kind of man Judah is. He can't be trusted. She saw, I've been deceived once, so now in this transaction, in order to protect myself and gain something out of this, I need insurance. I need insurance. If you give me a pledge until you send it. Verse 18, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand now those those items the signet that is a seal signet or seal your cord which holds that seal usually they wear it on their necks and your staff now why these items well basically this is like the modern day equivalent of a credit card your driver's license because these things these were custom made they're not something that you could get at like you know urban outfitters and some other girl is like wearing the same thing right like you know it's not like the same thing it is custom made specific it is like your id or your credit card and what does judah do so he gave them to her judah's not a very clever man I'll, I'll give you that much and she conceived by him then she arose and went away and taking off her veil she put on the garments of her widowhood goes back to how life was like nothing happened. I have a few questions for us. First question is, what in the world is going on here? What in the world is going in this story? Where is this going? So far, nothing good has happened in the past 17, 18 verses that we have read. There's nothing good happening in this story. What in the world is going on? I don't, I brought my kids to this like you know like what in the world is going on in this passage why is this in the bible see i asked myself those questions too i remember the first time i was introduced to this character of onan it was in rd group and it was like it was like a running joke like yo you know who's your favorite bible character it's like oh oh now you never heard of him and then we found out what he did it's like what's wrong with you you know like how is he your favorite character but then the more i studied this passage These wicked and cruel sons of Judah, they reflect me more than anyone. The messed up characters in the Bible, I wish I could relate to these these titans in the Bible who are known for their faithfulness, but when I look deep into my own life, I resemble the wicked people in the Bible. If you knew me in my heart, the things that go into my heart, I resemble them more. And these resonate with me. See, the uncomfortable parts of the Bible, they are there to show us who we really are. That's why we can't choose. We can't choose verses that we like, chapters that we want to read and not read. We need to read the whole thing because it is in these uncomfortable, disgusting passages that we get to see how serious sin is. How deep the rabbit hole goes if you look at it. See, these things are difficult. They make us uneasy. Why? Because when we look at ourselves, it is often difficult. It is often, it makes us uneasy when we take a good look at ourselves. You see the capacity of man for sin, to what degree they would go to sin. And we see we see God slay and kill these people in the blink of an eye. You see how much displeasure God has with sin, how serious it is. My second question is, what was she doing? What was Tamar doing? She wasn't in this as, like, a change of profession. This wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm going to turn to prostitution now. It's like like some of us decided to be an uber driver like you know it's not just a change in profession what was she doing she wasn't in this for the money it was it was never about the money what was she doing she was taking matters into her own hands her value laid in having a child if my father-in-law isn't going to give give me this child i will take it I'm gonna take matters into my own hands because why what does the child mean for tamar what does the child mean for the women in the bible during this time for them this is the only way i'm going to matter this is the only way that i could get through life if i were a widow this is actually what happens to widows in that time if you remain a widow They resort to these things. They resort to prostitution because there's just no other way for them to get through life, to get and earn money, earn a living. And this is exactly why they instilled this concept of leverage marriage, of protecting them from the very things. You see how ironic this is? It was Judah's duty to protect Tamar. And in this twist of events, he is the one that has made her vulnerable. I want to sidestep a little bit. Go back to verse 17. He answered, I will send you a young goat. This is after he was asked, what will you pay me that you will come into me? And he goes, a young goat. As I was studying this and reading some commentaries, I was surprised that some of the early theologians have a capacity for sarcasm because that is my love language, by the way. So Matthew Henry writes this. He goes, regarding the statement about paying her with a young goat a goodly price at which her chastity and honor were valued. Nay, had the consideration been thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil, it had not been a valuable consideration. The favor of God, the purity of the soul, the peace of conscience, and the hope of heaven are too precious to be exposed to sale at any such rate. God takes sin seriously. God takes purity seriously. God takes all these things seriously that no currency on this world would ever match it. The reason why I bring this up is because we have become so numb to these things. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of us here, when they read this, they didn't even flinch. I've seen worse in the movies. Isn't that shocking anymore? come numb, gotten used to these things, desensitized. And we see this not only only in our movies, but we see this in our culture, where our culture is going. Why? It is is a misunderstanding of value. See, the value we place on certain things, that's what reveals our hearts. The value we place on, on sex, on marriage, on purity, on relationships, on gender, reveals where we're going. Here's the shocking thing. Many people, women, men, have given themselves up for way less than what that's worth. Many times. More shocking thing about this story, more than what's actually going on, is how how few of us flinch, how few of us are affected by these things. This is the current tide of our culture. this is where our culture is heading. our view it's all relative that's where our culture' is going It's, it's relativity about gender, morals, values, all those things. there's the culture we live in now, but this is also the culture that Judah was living in. in verse 20 usually when I was rec- when I was studying for this for this passage, um, one certain encyclopedia in Genesis said that. There is no homiletic application for genesis 38 meaning there's no direct application for genesis 38 just read it at your own cost you know like to add to your knowledge but if we look deep enough especially this section starting in verse 20. what does judah do next when judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand he did not find her so a bit of an issue there Verse 21, and he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Now let me give a little bit of culture context here. Um, when Judah saw Tamar, the word he used to describe how he saw Tamar was prostitute, that is Zana in the Hebrew language. What Dolomite is saying here, when he says cult prostitute, it is kadesha. There are two different words. What am I saying? For Judah, she was just a prostitute. I was just committing immorality. It was immorality to even indulge in prostitution. It was a sin and he fully consented to it. But what about for Hira? What about the people from that area? She was Kadesha, cult prostitute. What that means is these prostitutes during that time they were used as a worship the use of prostitutes during this time in their culture was a worship to their god of love to their god of fertility so what was sin for tamar for, for judah is a worship for the canaanites for Hira, for his people and you see what kind of influence this culture has on judah how it has it has blurred his morals the culture and the influence of the canaanites so, looking back, looking back at the series of Genesis, we know that Judah's family, not even his whole family, because if you look at his grandfathers, his great-grandfathers, out of the two sons, only one would be faithful to the Lord. Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. And he is actually part of the good bunch who know the Lord and have a relationship with the Lord. And what does he do with that? Having have. Access to the one true God that everybody else is worshiping a false God, is a pagan. He has access to the true God and this is what he does with his life. What was God's purpose? Why why did he do this? Why did he do this whole plan in the first place? God's plan from the very beginning was to make a holy people. Now we say that word again. Meaning of the word holy, it's not just being morally upright. The meaning of the word holy is set Apart, set apart for himself. This is moving a little bit forward, but we will see in the following chapters that his family makes a trip to the land of Egypt. And some of us who know our Bibles, we know what that was like. It was 400 years of slavery. You know, the purpose of that, why God has led these people to Egypt, was for this very purpose, to set them apart because he knew these people have a tendency to intermarry build relations with a people they're not meant to build relations with and he knew if i send them to egypt the egyptians hate these people even if his chosen people wanted to intermarry make relations with them they would not be able to god is very serious about setting apart his people he would allow 400 years of slavery to forward his purpose Why? Because he is more concerned with his purposes, with his glory, than our comfort. He's more concerned with that. A morphed view of morality, of values, it stems from a morphed view of God. That's why we need to go back to definite truths. In in this culture that is making everything relative, we need some definite truths, things that we could go back to. And it is found, if you're looking at your Bibles, it is found in your laps. It's on your phones. The definite truth we need to, to gain our bearings back, it is in your hands, the word of God. There's nothing left for speculation. It is black and white. If you don't believe me about having morphed view of morality look at judah's response when when this whole thing happened when the when the negotiations went down and didn't go down according to plan how does judah respond to this what was he concerned about well first of all this is kind of ironic judah actually made an effort to give tamar the prostitute what she deserved right he was faithful in paying her for her services. Now, the ironic thing is, Judah was more faithful to Tamar as a prostitute than he was to her as a daughter in law. Can you see the morphed view of values in the life of Judah? What else was he concerned about? Telling his friend, well, you see, I, I did the effort, I gave her what she deserved, I tried to pay her. What was he doing? he was justifying his wickedness. Like, well, at least I tried to, tried to pay her, right? What else? His other concern was that what he did would not be known to others. Or he would be the laughing stock. That's what's important to Judah. What's important to him is what people think of him, not what God thinks of him. If you look at it, up until this point, for them... It's not all that bad. Why? Because at this point of the story, both Judah and Tamar got what they wanted. Judah wanted sexual satisfaction, immediate gratification. He got that. What else? He had successfully gotten rid of Tamar, who he thought has cursed his family, brought about tragedy in his life. Now how about Tamar? Well, she's gotten herself a child. They both got what they wanted. kind of a sick happy ending but thank god the the, the story doesn't end there we look at verse 24 we look at god's provision god's provision and trust me it took a lot to get here it took a lot to get here verse 24 about three months later judah was told tamar your daughter-in-law has been immoral More accurately, she has been adulterous because looking back in the eyes of the law, she was still married into his family, to Judah's family. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Wow. Wow, Judah, really? All of a sudden, you're this person wielding righteousness, declaring judgment on people. Let her be burned now looking back actually he's not he's not too far off the mark in deuteronomy 22 i'm not going to turn there but in deuteronomy 22 that is it is common practice to punish those who are adulterous by stoning them to death the more severe punishment is burning them to death that is in leviticus and i say severe when i say the word severe let me give you a picture of what that looks like that is talking about homosexual relations, incest, and bestiality. It is up there in severity. That is what burning is reserved for. So you see Judah, he is is going above and beyond his responsibility. He's going above and beyond. The usual punishment would be stoning. The severe punishment would be burning. Why? Why such zeal? Why such zeal in Judah to have his daughter-in-law burned? couple of reasons for it maybe he could be compensating for his own immorality trying to cover it up also this is like this is a bargain because now he could finally get rid of tamar for good that's what he's been trying to do in the first place and you would have never thought maybe you would have because that's what the story's been building up to Verse 25, just look at this plot twist. It's dramatic. You just just see this. This is like the rising action building up to the climax of the story. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. That is, she sent it by a messenger. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are. Guess what they are? The signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. That is, she did not, he did not have sexual relations with her again. Can i tell you something weird yes weirder than this story you guys ever had to fill up a family medical history like oh you have a history of high cholesterol high blood pressure um, diabetes cancer you have to fill up that form well think of it this way if you look at judah's family medical history and the tendency of his sons to die instantaneously due to their wickedness it is almost shocking that Judah is still alive. Ever thought about that? He's still alive. With all this background of of his kids dying instantaneously to wickedness, being killed by the Lord, he's still alive. Amazing. Amazing survivability. How is Judah still alive? We need to go back. How is God glorified? God is glorified In the exercise of his character, in both justice, but also sometimes in his grace. He is glorified both ways. And in this situation, he chooses to exercise his grace. In both justice and grace, he is glorified. There's a word here that re- recurs twice. It is the word identify. Identify whose these are. Then Jews, Judah identified them. See, the Jewish historians, when they look at this passage, they say when Judah heard those words, it struck a chord in his heart. This word only appears one at a time in the book of Genesis. This is the chapter before. It says in Genesis 37, 31 to 33, then they took Joseph's robe, this is after they sold him to slavery, and which was Judah's idea, by the way, and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. Some of them even say that Judah deceived his father with a goat, so shall you be deceived by Tamar with a goat. 32 and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said this we have found please identify whether it is your son's robe or not and he identified it and said it is my son's robe a fierce animal has devoured him joseph is without doubt torn to pieces god is very purposeful in these things there's no accidents Identify struck a chord in his heart this is where the lord had begun to work in the life of judah i tell you this why how does he respond to this how does he respond to being faced with his sin being faced with his wickedness the degree of his wickedness number one he confesses his sin he goes she has been more righteous than i not saying that what she did was all right But comparatively, why? Because Tamar was only trying to get what was rightfully hers, what rightfully belonged to her, what she deserved. But he refused her. And when he refused her, bad stuff started to happen. Because the whole time he was wrongfully accusing her of being the source of the death in his family. Judah had the responsibility of protecting Tamar from the very vulnerabilities that she had to resort to. She would have gotten to this point if Judah had just done and fulfilled his duty as father-in-law to protect her. Number two, what does he do? He turned away from his sin. He knew her again no more. Here's, here's the thing. We don't truly repent of our sins if we don't forsake our sins. We don't truly hate our sins. And how do we know that he's actually, he's turned around? Turned around from not just this one immediate sin, but also turned around from his lifestyle. Why? Because the next time we see Judah, he's back with his brothers. No longer hanging out with Hira, no longer hanging out in this this perverse culture, but back with his brothers. Left behind his life with the Canaanite culture. Now realizing his unrighteousness and the unrighteousness of his sons, how God has judged them rightly, Judah realized what he truly deserved. He realized, I deserve to be swallowed up by the ground. I deserve to be be killed right in this moment for the wickedness I have committed. And the statement he makes at the end is remarkable. He says, she's more righteous than I. Not saying that she's righteous pure, but she's more righteous than I. What is he saying? Despite of your sin, you are righteous. Despite of your sin, you are more righteous. How can can we get a declaration like that? How can something like that be declared over our lives despite of our sin? What made the difference? How How was Judah's life different from the life of his sons? The outcome of his life, how is it so different? Short answer is God's grace. See here's the thing. Coming from a guy like Judah, this type of statement doesn't seem to hold a lot of value. How can I possibly take seriously this unrighteous man declaring me righteous? What is that worth? Really? What is that worth? Doesn't seem to hold much value until? As we close, we look at the final verses in verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Sounds familiar. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother, came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And that's where the chapter ends. Kind of an unusual ending to the story, right? Until we fast forward a little bit. Look at Matthew 1, 1 to 6a. Starting in verse 1, it goes, the book of the genealogy of who? Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. I don't see Ishmael there. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. Don't see Esau there. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Solomon. And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. You know, it's amazing. It doesn't even mention his first wife. I told you, he, she remained nameless all throughout the Bible. But it mentions Tamar. Judah and Tamar make it to the list. His sons by her don't make the list. No mention of his first wife, no mention of her kids, but Judah and Tamar made it. Why? See, God's grace and his redemption is found even in his family. Even in his family. Whoever told you that grace doesn't exist in the Old Testament needs to see the genealogy of Jesus. Just look at, look at Judah's brothers. Reuben and Judah, they are guilty of incest. Simeon and Levi, they were guilty of murder, slaughter, genocide that they were fathers in this household. And from Levi, his brother, that's where we get the priestly line. And from Judah, this wicked man, we get kings, King David. Not only kings, but the Messiah, the Savior. We get him from Judah. So when you look at their family line, it, is, it can only be taken as a testament to the mercy of God. There's no way you can look at this and just, say, just think to yourself like, oh, it only makes sense. They're a pretty noble family. No. It makes no sense. Absolutely no sense. If our standards for, for nobility, our standards for somebody to be regarded highly, is their reputation, is their family's reputation, Jesus would be disqualified. We always look at Philippians 2. In terms of humility and in light of these things this should shine all the more brightly talking about jesus have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself emptied himself did not spare any reputation for himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Made himself of no reputation. Now you need to think about this in terms of Jesus is God. For God to come down and make no reputation about himself, that is mind-boggling. Much more to be placed in a family of deep and profound sinners. What's he trying to say? What's he trying to show us? That Jesus' worthiness, you sing that, worthy, has nothing to do with his family background, has nothing to do with his lineage, but his own. His worthiness is his own. His worthiness belongs to him alone because he is God and because he is holy and worthy. Worthy. What does this do for us when we look at these things? What should this do in our own lives? Herbert Leopold, he paraphrases Martin Luther here. He goes, these records that show the grievous faults of God's weak saints and the forgiveness they received are of great comfort to all poor sinners of our time. This is a comforting message for us. Very comforting message for us. Because we learn a couple things about God. We learn that his salvation, the way he saves us, it is out of his grace, not of our own merit. We could never earn his salvation. Not only that, but he came to save the chief of sinners. See, there's this thought. It's extremely humbling. In learning God's holiness, learning about his justice, and how he exercises his glory, how God glorifies himself Do you understand that God could have chosen me? God could have chosen me as an object of his wrath and destroyed me, and he would have been glorified just the same. But God in his grace chose to save me. Nothing that qualified me chose to save me chose to glorify himself in my salvation, not in my destruction, not being an object of his wrath, but being an object of his grace. That is extremely humbling. Because it is only when we grasp a true understanding of God's holiness, his justice, that's the only way we can truly appreciate his grace. If we think that our God isn't holy, isn't just, doesn't, doesn't punish sinners, His grace would be of no value to us. But when we see how serious He is about His holiness, and you see how much grace He's showered on you, there's only one response. There can only be one response when we take the when we take God's
1: holiness seriously we will take sin seriously. And when we take sin seriously, we will cherish His grace dearly. Let's pray.
0: Father, we humbly ask that the truth of Your Word would be the truth in our hearts. We would not take anything for granted. We would not take You for granted. You would not take your salvation for granted. Father, I pray that you help us take a good look at ourselves. Find that there's nothing worthy, nothing lovely about ourselves to be saved by you. But your salvation comes by your grace, comes by your mercy. That you, holy God, worthy of our praise, would, would lower yourself to our level. Help us understand these truths. Help us, Lord God. Help that these truths would change our lives, change the way we look at you, change the way we look at sin, and change the way we see your grace.
1: There's only you who can do that. There's only you who can change lives, change hearts. So we ask that you do that right now. We ask these things in your name. Amen.
0: Today we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Now before we do that, we want to do this properly. You know, in 1 Corinthians 11, we use this verse to describe what the Lord's Supper is. Do you know that the context of this passage is people malpracticing the Lord's Supper? Paul was reminding them of what this was for how it's meant to be done. He was talking to a church that that had divisions in it. There's division between rich and poor when the rich would look down on the poor and he reminds them and then you you partake of the Lord's Supper like this? You may eat the bread, you may drink the wine, but you are not partaking in the Lord's Supper when you do it in such a way. So he describes it. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread Lord's Supper is a worship. The the, the purpose of the Lord's Supper, it is to, to remind us of the unity we have under the work of Jesus Christ. We come together as a church, as his own body, and we remember it together. Now, you can't remember something that you didn't know in the first place. So if you... If this isn't the truth in your heart, if this isn't the truth in your life, I humbly ask you, please refrain. Please refrain from partaking, lest it convince you otherwise that you are saved by this. You're not saved by this. You're saved by the work of Jesus Christ. Paul gives us a fair warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord, let a person examine himself, examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Some of you here, the gospel is the truth of your life. If it is, I invite you to please partake with us as we remember the Lord's word today. But if it is not the truth in your life, Maybe this moment is best reserved for us to examine ourselves. Dig deep. Wrestle with the Lord. may not happen in the next five minutes. You may need to take this home. Cry out to the Lord in your own rooms. Let me find out, where do I stand before Holy God? Am I the object of His wrath or am I the object of His grace? So invite those those who acknowledge this as the truth in their lives, you can take the bread and the juice up here. Don't let this be a default moment. Don't don't let this be just some tradition.
1: when we take this bread we remember his body his body was beaten bruised scarred spat on holy God bearing the pain and the shame that we deserve on his body Jesus the son of God So he says, Eat this and remember. So we eat this and we remember. You can partake of the bread. He holds up a cup, calls it his new covenant. His new undying promise to save sinners by His grace. Not by how they fulfill the law, a new covenant in His blood. We had a debt. We had a debt against God. And Jesus paid it in full by His blood. By His blood. And an eternal God who was there when God created the world would bleed. Holy God would bleed for us. So we take this cup and we drink this cup. And we remember that. And we drink the cup. Father, we ask that the things we remember today we would remember for the rest of our lives. That these truths would be would just find its home in our hearts. We would cherish it. We would look back at it, look fondly back at it, Lord. Remind us of your holiness that we would remember what your grace means for us. Help us remember always your son beaten and slain for us when it is rightfully yours to slay us instead. Help us remember the pardon that Jesus Christ afforded for us constantly that change our lives may that dictate how we live our lives we pray these things in your son's name amen
2: now if you're here for the first time you may not know that we have some discussion questions we group ourselves in homogeneous groups men men women women young people with young people and while it is still fresh in our hearts and in our minds from the message this morning, we would like for you to break out in your discussion groups and answer the following. Now, before I go into the questions, let me remind you. It's a secure group. This is not a place for gossip. Second, if you don't want to share, don't, wanna sh- don't, don't share. Okay? And if you're leading the group, don't force the people to talk if they don't want. All right? You only share as you, know, as you want. You don't go around. Oh, you haven't shared yet. Okay? No. Not like that. So, number one. How does the holiness of God affect the way we view common sins in our lives? You see, it's only man that has made sin like common, uncommon, venial, mortal, grave, and light. In God's eyes, all sin is what? Sin. Alright? Number two. How can we practice holiness in a culture that is increasingly hostile toward God? Do we live in hostile circumstances nowadays? You go to certain parts of the world, and if you declare that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're hanged, you're shot, you're stoned, you're stabbed. How are we going to exercise holiness in this type of culture? And lastly, in what ways has God used the difficult moments in your life for his glory. Remember what our brother Nate had shared with us? In God's justice, he must be glorified. In his mercy, he must be glorified. In his grace, he is all the more glorified. Amen? So God, I pray that we will just participate in this discussion questions as we gear ourselves, Lord, toward the application of your word in our life. We commit the balance of our day to you, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.